Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, where we discuss the ideas, people, and events that have made America what it is today. We believe that by understanding our history and our principles, we can better live up to the promise of the American founding and preserve our ongoing experiment in self-government. Welcome to The American Idea. Well, I want to welcome everyone to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're going to be talking about a subject that has been with us since the founding of the Republic, but it always comes back into the news every presidential election cycle. And that topic is the Electoral College, its origins, its principles, and its importance uh, for today. And we're joined in that conversation by a person who might just be the foremost expert in the nation <laughs> on the Electoral College, Michael Maybach. Michael is uh, a distinguished fellow on American federalism at Save Our States. He's also at the Center for elect the Electoral College, the founder and director, and uh, on the board of trustees and managing director of the very wonderful James Wilson Institute. Uh, before his engagement, in the public in public affairs like this, Michael has been at the Aspen Institute, uh, well known, I'm sure, to many of our listeners. Also, the European American Business Council, where he was president and CEO, and of course, before that, uh, in the corporate sector, uh, with Intel Corporation as the vice president for global government affairs. Uh, so, Michael has had a, a an interesting and varied career in the in the private and public sector. And I, I think he also has this claim to fame, if I'm not mistaken, which is he is the first American elected to public office under the age of 21, uh, which is absolutely remarkable, Michael. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, Jeff, first of all, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm such a fan of Ashbrook Center. And uh, as you know, I finished a master's program in American history and government. And it was so helpful in in part because you're a wonderful faculty, also because you use only primary sources and it forces everyone to deal with the person, whether it's Grover Cleveland or it's Abraham Lincoln or uh, John C. Calhoun, to deal with them in their own words and their own actions and not somebody's opinion today about that. So it's a it's an excellent master's program for anybody that loves American history and the study of it and the understanding of it. Um, on the uh, election thing, I'm, um, I was elected to office April 12, 1972, when I was an undergraduate. And that's three months, 12 days into the amendment that gave us the 18-year-old vote. Uh -huh. So I was going to school in DeKalb, Illinois, Northern Illinois University. I'm a first generation college student. My parents were depression and my dad was in World War II for four and a half years, et cetera. And um, I decided to run for the county board when we got the the vote because all my a lot of my fellow students were throwing bricks through police car windows, a lot of um, uh, contretemps going on in the Republic because of the Vietnam War. And I thought we ought to do something positive. It was a six to one Democratic district, but I got a bunch of students to register and I won by 37 votes. It scared the heck out of me. But I was a county board member for four years in DeKalb oh. County. 
And um, so it turns out I was the first one elected because Illinois has county elections very early in the year. Um, so with that, uh, we should get on to the Electoral College. Absolutely. Well, it is a, a privilege for us to have you here, Michael, and to have you, as, as you say, as a graduate of our master's program. Um, the Electoral College, we're heading in, as you know, toward a presidential election in, in 2024. And the Electoral College will definitely be back in the news. Uh, it'll be back in the news, highlighted for its virtues, and as you know, in broadly in the media for for many criticisms that have been leveled against it. But before we get to those, our listeners uh, will know, of course, have heard of the Electoral College. They'll know something about it. But it's always intriguing to me to understand more fully the origin of the Electoral College. How did we end up with that method of choosing the American president? Very good question. It is the seminal question. You know, uh, Cicero said that until you know history, you're always a child. So looking back to the history of something gives us insights into why it is today the way it is. The founders wanted to start a republic, and they they studied Aristotle and his politics. Um, and Montesquieu was, after the Bible was the number one book they quoted was Montesquieu, uh, Spirit of the Laws, 1748, all the founders read it. And they wanted to have a Republican government, which is an admission that man's nature is broken and that to have a king or even a parliament could become very tyrannical, either one of them. And of course they had George III, but all, all through history, they had seen tyranny after tyranny. So when here they are writing the constitution, they had the articles, but it was a very loose confederation and it was falling apart. In the Constitutional Convention, there were 116 men in that room, and the room behind me is depicted here, Independence Hall. And um, they pretty early in the process came up with the, the House and Senate. That was the Connecticut Compromise between uh, Roger Sherman and John James Madison and others uh, to have two senators per state and then the House by population. That was the compromise that really made the country possible with our constitution anyway. They, the court system was very basic and they didn't really outline that figure very much, but it wasn't until the last week of the Constitutional Convention that they decided on the Electoral College. Throughout the summer of 1787, there were different proposals. Should we have the House or Senate or the whole Congress uh, elect the uh, prime minister, if you will? The only model they had was the British system but George Washington, among others, who never said a word at the convention, would say during meals, I'm sure, uh, he would ask the delegates, have you ever been on a ship in a storm without a captain? Because for seven and a half years, I led the revolution for this country, and I had 13 captains in the Articles of Confederation. I did not have a commander-in-chief. We need to have an independent executive. This is Federal 51, and that independent executive can veto acts of the Congress. It appoints the, the Supreme Court with the acceptance of the Senate, et cetera. So it was part of the triangle of federalism that completed the, the design that really Montesquieu and Aristotle had come up with. And uh, so we, I think, were very fortunate in that. So then they asked themselves, and they took a vote, <clears throat> should we have the president independently elected by a popular vote in the country? Well, no, it would always be a Virginian or somebody from Philadelphia, the largest city, 
et cetera, because we had nine small states and four large states. And that was <clears throat> that was the dynamic at all at all uh, corners of the convention. So they um, then voted, should we have the Congress to elect the president? No, then we'd have, they would just be a tool uh, of the Congress and do whatever the Congress said, or they'll get a new president very quickly. Should we have it elected through votes in the election, uh, the uh, in the states, whether that's by the legislature or popular vote, each state would decide. And yes, <clears throat> the delegates voted to have the president elected by the states and, and whatever votes they would take would aggregate into, with the electoral votes, would aggregate into the result. And if you think about it, it takes 270 electors to elect a president, and that is 50% plus one of the entire membership of the House and Senate. So the Electoral College, in a, in a sense, recreates every congressional seat in the Senate seats, but what, for one purpose, to go four weeks after the election in December to the 13 capitals at the time and elect a president through uh, the Electoral College. Electoral College then is created by the framers. Uh, it goes out to the states for ratification. The anti-federalists, the critics of the Constitution, criticized everything about it, uh, as we know from reading the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers. And some of those are very trenchant and important criticisms. Was there criticism of the Electoral College? It's my understanding there was very little said about it because remember the anti-federalists or uh, Brutus, for example, were largely driven by states' rights. Uh, you know, the, we were sovereign states, and the fact that that each state would be would control their own vote for the president, and those would be aggregated based on the physics of the Connecticut Compromise, which is if you're little Delaware or Rhode Island, you don't get just one. Uh, vote, you get three because you have two senators. So it skewed it a little bit toward the uh, least populous states. So they, they were really worried about the president becoming a king and uh, Washington taking away so many powers. So one of the things I do is refer um, um, people that I speak with uh, to Federalist 45 by Madison. It's a very important paper where he says the powers of the federal government will be limited, specific, to look outward toward other nations. This is, uh, you know, we used to have a border, <laughs> and this is immigration, this is defense, State Department stuff, foreign policy, treaties, et cetera. But the powers of the states will be full, and they will endear the states to the people, is how he sort of words it. So we don't have, so that's interesting, and it makes sense that there's not a lot of criticism. One of the features of the Constitution that the Anti-Federalists are not vociferous critics of is the Electoral College as a way to select the president. Right. Uh, but as our listeners know, because they uh, many of our listeners are students of American history, the Electoral College uh, does run into some practical challenges early in the Republic um, with some elections. And I'm thinking, for example, of the election of 1800 uh, or the election later uh, in the in the early 1800s, where there's not necessarily controversy about the Electoral College, but controversy about the outcome of elections. For example, Thomas Jefferson and, and Aaron Burr. Mm -hmm. uh, talk right. to us a little bit about those early okay. challenges in electing Pretty the good. president. I think 1800 and 1824 are good ones to look at. Uh, 1800. Burr ran as a vice presidential candidate with 
Jefferson uh, against Adams, who was running for re-election. The, uh, be, in those days, they didn't run as a ticket, and Burr and Jefferson de facto were tied in their electoral votes. So then Jefferson signaled to certain people, and especially to, to his running mate, you should tell some of these delegates to stand aside so that I'll be the majority here. And uh, Burr rejected doing this. And so Alexander Hamilton, to his credit, contacted some Federalists and said, really, we, you, we cannot have Aaron Burr. Of course, later he died from the duel he had with Burr. We cannot have Burr as president. Um, please do vote for Jefferson. And two or three did change their vote and Jefferson was elected. This led to the 12th Amendment, which said that that people ran as a as a team, if you will, president, vice president, did away with that problem. That was uh, the um, the Constitution been amended 27 times, and that was a very timely one there, and sort of reminds us of the farewell address of George Washington, where he, he reminds people, you know, you can amend this thing. You know, it's only eight year old Constitution. He was worried about even then in September of uh, his last year in the presidency, and he said, you can amend the Constitution. The other election gets more notice, much more notice most of the time, is 1824, where Andrew Jackson wins the popular vote, but doesn't win enough electors because there's four people running, and that includes Henry Clay and uh, uh, John Quincy Adams. As you, as you know, when no one wins the electoral vote, it gets thrown into the House of Representatives. And matter of fact, the founders thought that would happen often and because they didn't really see the two-party system developing the way it did. And the House, interestingly, has to vote by House state delegations. And so uh, Henry Clay threw his support to John Adams, and the two together had enough states with them that they defeated Andrew Jackson, who was bitter about the Electoral College and forever was bitter about that and the National Bank and all kinds of things he was unhappy with. Right. Um, but then four years later, he runs and he wins in the Electoral College. And then we didn't have more contretemps on this until 1876, uh, when we had um, three states still run by U.S. military. And that was, this is a Hayes-Tilden election, um, where Finally, there was a meeting of members of Congress, and they just decided to give the presidency to Hayes because there were so many disputes about ballots counting and troops uh, running elections and all this. And so Hayes agreed, first thing he would do as president was remove all the federal troops from the South as a, as a bargain to become president. This leads to the Electoral Act of 1888, I guess it is. and. Um, that was really in play when we had uh, the January 6th uh, discussions, if you will, about the Electoral College vote votes. So those early controversies in 1800 and 1824 and then in 1876, do those occasion any calls for reform or even abolition of the Electoral College? Or has the Electoral College been fundamentally accepted by the American people and the, and public officials as just part of our constitutional system. So for many, many years, let's say all of the all of the 19th century, the whole idea of the state was almost sacred. And there was no challenge to the Electoral College of any ser seriousness. 
what happened was the, the two challenges we've had in the Congress have been in 1970, Richard Nixon, 1970, endorsed having a popular national popular vote. And it went to the through the House and the Senate dealt with it. And of all people, uh, Eugene McCarthy, he's an anti-war figure. He was the one opposing President uh, Johnson on the war. Eugene McCarthy leads the debate of course, he's from, um, I believe, New Hampshire. Um, he leads the debate for the Electoral College for small states, and he's successful. So a Democrat in the Senate defends in 1970. Well, in 1977, Jimmy Carter endorses the same national popular vote uh, amendment. And uh, a friend of mine who's now passed away, um, uh, Michael um, Ullman from Claremont College, a wonderful scholar, was on the staff of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, Republican staff, and he'd written an extensive memo about how deleterious this would be to the Republic. Well, Daniel Patrick Moynihan was given a copy of this by a Republican colleague uh, in the Senate, and he was so taken by Michael Ullman's um, arguments, and you can you can read Michael Ullman's uh, essays about the Electoral College, um, that uh, he he delivered a one-hour colloquy on the Senate floor in 1977. That's one of the <clears throat> best things ever written that I've ever seen in defense of the Electoral College and uh, and just all the different pieces of the nation that depend on this, this apparatus, if you will, of how we elect the president. And so it hasn't, no one's taking a run on it yet uh, since 1977 in the Congress but of course, in 2006, the National Popular Vote Compact Group, very well funded out of California, launched without going to the Congress. And so ignoring the compact clause of Article 1, we can get into that if you want, but that's uh, 16 states have now passed their compact. Right. So we have seen a in, in some ways uh, these challenges come out of Congress, as you say, stall in Congress in the last 50 years or so. I do want to talk more about the national popular vote uh, movement, uh, but I'm wondering the the 1970 Nixon endorsing this, a Republican endorsing it in '70, and then a Democratic president Jimmy Carter endorsing it in '77. Yeah. That probably doesn't just happen out of the blue. No. There must have been a movement growing, um, whether it was intellectuals, scholars, thinkers, yeah. earlier in the decades earlier wanting to move the United States away from the Electoral College? Uh, th th very good question. There's two things. One is Tocqueville and Democracy in America says that if Americans had to choose between equality and liberty, they choose equality. So we are a majoritarian mindset people, uh, but all people really are. I find with students especially, they're against the Electoral College because they just believe in majority rule and of discussion. And I have to, I have to ask them questions about that because of course the founders were not majoritarians at, at all. The progressive movement uh, wanted to get rid of the electoral college. They got the income tax, they got the direct election of senators and that instilled in Americans the progressive movement. And this comes out of the industrial revolution and, and senses that more and more inequality, et cetera, uh, people moving to the cities, the cities become, uh, you know, today 50% of our people live in nine states. And um, 
Los Angeles County has more people than 41 states and New York City has more people than 39 states. So wow. as, as Industrial Revolution, of course, the Industrial Revolution changed, <clears throat> excuse me, everything. And one of the things that changed was this mindset of the farm versus the city. The, the scale goes way toward the population centers and away from people that are feeding those population centers. So uh, it is a very human thing to want majority to rule. And um, it, as the founders would say, they, it always leads to tyranny. Um, so, so let me ask you then, the, the challenges um, that have come in recent years, since say, since 1977, um, and, and now maybe even, as you say, in 2006, uh, with the national popular vote movement. What are the arguments of this movement as a criticism of the yeah. Electoral College? They only, I think it's fair to say, I've debated them. They only have two arguments. One is they ask the audience, well, you elect a governor, is that by popular vote or some sort of a, you know, a county by county electoral system or something? It's popular vote. You elect a mayor by popular vote. Well, those are heads of government our president should be elected the same way. That's a very logical thing to say, but we're a nation of states, we're, we're not one state. And um, the second argument is that um, all the Republicans in California, their votes don't count because it's an overwhelmingly democratic state. And all the, uh, let's say, all the Democrats in Texas, they're over overwhelmed by the Republicans, and therefore all these people are, are silenced. And those are their two arguments. Yeah, I was just going to ask you that, that uh, because the, the, the mind naturally does go to the analogy of, as you said, if we elect a governor by direct popular vote in our state, and I think all states do, yeah. um, then why don't we elect a president by direct popular vote? What's the difference between a state, the state of Ohio, where I am, and the United States? Right. And it's because we're a, <clears throat> a federal system, a federal a federation of states. Um, why, why does California have two senators and so does Wyoming when they have 40 million more people than Wyoming does? Because we're a nation of states and that we all contribute different ways to the republic. So to united we stand, divided we fall. My answer in part to this argument about, well, all the Republicans in California don't get a voice. I say, well, okay, if we had a national popular vote, then whoever wins in that everybody that didn't uh, vote for the winner, their voices would be silenced. In other words, every election has losers in terms of uh, election, electors or voters, if you will. So it's sort of a false argument. But one of the things I say to them, and I try to, <clears throat> I ask questions as well as debate people. I like to ask questions more than debate, is I'll say, well, um, why don't you in California or Texas, why don't you in California do what Nebraska and Maine do. They disaggregate their electors. And therefore, you uh, vote by congressional district for president. Yeah, I was going to ask, what do you mean by disaggregate? <clears throat> yeah. Well, Maine and Nebraska, in order to, to entice presidential candidates to visit those very low population states, they disaggregate their electors by congressional votes. So in Maine, it's three, for example, three. Um, and then they have two electors for uh, the Senate that are whoever wins the whole state, right? And so that's how they, they divide things. Um, if every state had disaggregated their electors, 
by congressional district, Mitt Romney would have defeated Barack Obama in 2012 because he won more congressional districts and more and enough states to do that. So it does matter. And anybody that that doesn't like the winner, it's called winner take all. The the national popular vote people don't like winner take all for states. That that bothers them. And so I say, well, just disaggregate your electors. Go to Sacramento and get them to disaggregate the electors, and then. I'll give you an example. I grew up in Illinois. Illinois has 112 counties. In 2016, Mrs. Clinton won 12 counties in Illinois, and Trump won 90 counties, where I'm from. I'm from downstate, uh, central Illinois, Peoria. Well, <laughs> Mrs. Clinton won all of the electors for Illinois, even though she only won 12 counties out of 112, because all the population around Chicago. If they had disaggregated those electors by congressional district, Trump would have won 25 or more percent of those electors. That would have been a big deal. So there are ways the founders allow us to disaggregate this winner take all within the states if, if we want to do it, but that's up to the states. But to have a national popular vote is to say that the states don't matter anymore. And of course, we never would have a constitution with that system. They voted 100% um, against national popular vote, the founders did. Before we continue with our conversation, I'd like to take a moment and ask you to learn a little more about the Ashbrook Center and how you can help us continue our work with teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chad Kiefer, Director of Philanthropy and Strategic Partnerships here at Ashbrook. At its heart, America's story is about the lives of patriots who have given their last full measure of devotion to preserve and protect what it means to be an American. But the tragic truth is that the American story is being rewritten as one of oppression and despair. Back in 1776, the founders took a chance when they created a new government built on principles of liberty. They took a chance on America. Now I'm challenging you to do the same. Your gift to Ashbrook today reaches students, teachers, and citizens across the country, helping them to understand why America is worthy of their devotion. With so many forces eroding our history and taking away from our principles, isn't it time we give America a chance? Your investment is encouraged now more than ever. Please visit us today at ashbrook.org backslash support. Hmm. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. That's a very interesting point, Michael. Um, the national popular vote movement, as you say, it tried to get traction in Congress in 1970 and 1977. That didn't work. It now has relaunched uh, and been around now for about 15, 16, 17 years. What is this movement? How is it trying to promote a national direct vote for president? Right. Again, history is important. There's a man named John Coza, who is a very wealthy guy in California. He has the patent on the, well, the software for the scratch-off lottery. And so every time somebody buys a lottery ticket, John Koza makes a few cents or whatever, and he's a very, very wealthy man. He's uh, in his late 70s. He was a fan of Al Gore. Gore lost the presidential election to George uh, W. Bush in 2000, as we know, with the famous Florida recount, which is a good example of why the Electoral College is important. We can talk about that at some point. but. Um, he was very upset that uh, Gore had 250,000 approximately more votes than Bush, but didn't win. So he hired a couple of professors, a 
political science to come up with a plan to get around the constitutional amendment that's required to change the electoral college, which is 38 states and 38 states will never get rid of the electoral college. There's too many small states that wouldn't do it. I mean, my gosh, I don't think anyway. Um, and so his their plan is to get state legislatures to pass identical bills, a model legislation that says very simply, no matter how the people of our state vote for president, whomever wins the national popular vote as aggregated by the 50 secretaries of state, we will, we, the state government will tell our electors to vote for that person. It's quite an, it's quite insulting to the voters of their own state. They're really saying your, your, our voters aren't as important as the overall vote of the country. And I dated, uh, dated, I debated a um, member of the uh, Virginia House of Delegates who represented my home here at the time, um, who had that bill in the legislature. And I said, well, that's quite an insult to the people of Virginia. He said, yes, but it's more important to me to have all the people select the president by a popular vote than to worry about what's going on just here in Virginia. But that's what it says. So can I, am I just, I want to make sure I understand what you're saying, because it's fairly remarkable. You're saying that the people of the state of Ohio, let's say in the next election, um, they vote for the Democratic candidate. Um, so all of Ohio's electoral votes would normally go to the uh, Democratic candidate, but right. the Republican candidate wins the national popular vote, has the most votes in the national popular vote. You're saying that under if the state of Ohio legislature passed this bill, Ohio's electors would be commanded to vote for the Republican, even though the Democrat won the state. Yes, it's stunning, but true, exactly as you describe. And um, of course, on so many levels, this is unconstitutional. Just a couple of examples of why, if, if it's useful to talk about that, uh, Jeff. Yeah, how does that? It, uh, obviously, these political scientists put this together, and there and state legislatures are passing it. They must think it's constitutional. Yep. But you're saying there are constitutional objections to it. Their argument is, as you know, it says in that the state legislatures will decide how their electors are chosen, right? So <laughs> that's the hook they're hanging this on, which is. <clears throat> even though the vo voters are going to vote because we do that here in you know Virginia or Ohio or wherever um the constitution gives us the power to say who are how our electors are selected and we've decided it ought to be the national popular vote despite the vote in our own state 16 legislatures have passed that 16 governors have signed that now 98% of the state legislators that have voted for that are in one party the democratic party and all 16 governors are in the Democratic Party. So this has become a project of the Democratic Party. I, I don't try to get partisan, but that, those are the facts. Very, very few state legislators that are Republicans have voted for this thing. And no governors, of course, have signed it. Uh, it only passes in all blue House, Senate, governor uh, situations in states. Interesting. Uh, well, interestingly, um, there is no national popular vote count. Uh, when we see on CBS News or Fox News or ABC or whatever, and they're doing on election night, that tally as secretaries of state announce, it's typically secretary of state, sometimes there's election commissioners or 
some other officer of the state. They simply get a calculator, start adding them up. But there's nobody in Washington, D.C. that says, oh, I, I'm the keeper of the national popular vote. And of course, there are constitutional problems with with this. And if you want, we can talk about that for a minute. That's fascinating because we sometimes forget, right, that in the United States, elections are run at the local level. Uh, even my mother was an election volunteer in, in yeah. a precinct. And then that's tallied up at the usually at the county level and then goes to the state. Uh -huh. And as you say, the state tallies it up. And then there is no national tally. That's interesting. We forget that. It's not a top-down process. It's a bottom-up process. We are a nation of states in so many ways. You know, I ask people, you know, what's your driver's license say? Is it say United States or Illinois? Do you have a, I mean, we have, you know, to be a state in America, you have to have Republican government. The That's the guarantee clause of the Constitution. So we, I ask people, is there a House and Senate in your state capital? Is there a governor, a court system? My gosh, you've got a republic. You're a citizen of that republic, and you vote as a member of that republic. And, you know, I show a picture of a Los Angeles uh, eight-lane on each side freeway, and then I show up a picture of a mountain in Montana, and I say, this is a different planet. You know, we, we're a nation of very different states and people and, and industries and histories. Uh, Louisiana, the state of Louisiana has a very different history than New Hampshire. My gosh. That's a fascinating point, Michael, because you have this national popular vote movement that wants to aggregate it all um, on the supposition, as you say, that the United States is one homogenous or amalgamated whole, as opposed to, as you put it, a nation of states. That's one uh, criticism of the Electoral College. That's the practical outgrowth since 2006. There have been other, as you know, though, academic, scholarly, and even popular criticisms of the Electoral College. For example, not just that it's anti-democratic, but that the Electoral College was created and rooted in racism and slavery. What's your response to that criticism? Uh, and by the way, Thomas West um, from Claremont has written a book um, uh, sort of defending the founders uh, on on such questions. Well, first of all, that. in 1787, all 13 states had slaves. And in the early days, New York had more slaves than Georgia, for example. So, um, and every country in the world had slaves or was in the slave trade business. We didn't invent it in 1619. So, um, so first of all, slavery was a historic fact, Old Testament, New Testament. There were African slave trade routes, etc. So it was uh, it was a sin on everybody's hands in those days. Uh, second, um, that the, the issue really did not come up and slavery is not mentioned in the Constitution. Matter of fact, uh, slave trade, it wasn't called that in the Constitution, was to be abolished within 20 years. And Thomas Jefferson did sign the legislation that uh, stopped the, the slave trade coming into the United States. The reason that people bring this up is because of the three-fifths clause, primarily. And that is that any state that has slaves, they're not counted as a full person for the apportionment of seats in the House of Representatives. And that number actually came out of a taxation compromise done under the Articles of Confederation, which it just happened to be a percentage that had been used by the states for another purpose, for you know, assessing 
dues, if you will, to the national government at the time. But this was really, uh, the, the, South, the South wanted to have all slaves represented so they had more seats in the House of Representatives. Some in the North uh, and others didn't want any slaves counted at all because they were not full citizens. And the compromise was three-fifths, which was a curbing of the, um, of the representation of the House of the South, sort of as a political punishment for having people enslaved, I guess you would say. But this was not a central issue of the Constitutional Convention at all. It really was the, the balance of power between the states, large and small. That's the House and Senate, the election of the president. Um, so I hope that's helpful. So if we if we look at those early debates, you're saying we would not see a split between those favoring the Electoral College or not. You you would see it based on size of state, not whether it was a slave or free state. Right. And two or three of the delegates from North Carolina, um, when they first started debating the Electoral College the last week of the convention, dissented from the Electoral College idea. They came around to su support it, I think, it was the last week they were ready to get out of town and who knows what the dynamics were you know people came and went from the convention etc but um there there was nothing said about the electoral college and slavery it was the it, james wilson uh from uh philadelphia who was a scottish immigrant had brought in the idea originally in the constitutional convention just in the early days uh it was he had some notion that some people in Europe had tried something like this, but it, it didn't get any traction. But in the Committee of Eleven, the Committee of Eleven, Governor Morris and Madison and Wilson and, and a few others, Hamilton, uh, really devised the, the Electoral College. And uh, Hamilton has a wonderful defense, I think it's Federal 79, where he says, if the Electoral College is not perfect, it is at least excellent. And what he means by that is, so we recreate all the seats in Congress among the states, and then we aggregate whatever, just like the Congress votes, to prevent a cabal, because originally some people were talking about getting all the electors to come to Philadelphia, the capital. And Hamilton and others said, oh my gosh, then somebody will come to town, the British or the French, and try to bribe them, and this will be a, we'll, we'll have a cabal. And therefore, we disaggregate them to the state capitals, and they have to meet the same day the same time. And so you can't have, now we have 50 states, who was gonna go bribe electors in 50 state capitals, including, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's right, fascinating. Springfield, Illinois, it's a wonderful, uh -huh. that's why he says it is at least excellent. He's so pleased with what they came up with. It is, you know, they go to their own capitals to vote because they're citizens of that state. It's just a, a reaffirmation that we are a nation of states I was a presidential elector in 2016. Now, my candidate didn't win, so I didn't go to Richmond. But if my candidate won, I would have gone to Richmond with other people in my party, and we would have voted as electors um, representing my 8th Congressional District. I was the guy. And so it's just a fascinating uh, compromise the founders came up with. Well, let me ask you about that then. The upcoming presidential election, how will the Electoral College shape the upcoming presidential campaign. Yeah, it, and it does, it always does. Uh, we always have swing states. So people, so a Democrat will take for granted California, which means the Republican may not visit very often there. And the same with New York, and the same with maybe Florida and Texas, you know, it depends 
on each party and what they do, but they'll be, and we'll read all about it next year. There's six or seven or eight swing states, you know, because the polls say this, right? Well, it, we used to have a solid South. It was all Democrat. And now, of course, the South is pretty much Republican. So when I grew up in Illinois, we had Everett Dirksen and Chuck Percy as Republican senators. Today, there are no Republicans elected statewide in Illinois. And Ronald Reagan was the was a governor two terms in uh, California. So was Pete Wilson. And now there's no Democrat or Republican governors in California. So we do have swing states. And those swing states are, are swing states because the people of that state are so sharply divided on, on what's happening in America today, right? So in a way, it's sort of nicely ironic that the candidates both go to, we usually have two main parties because of the Electoral College, they go to those states to debate those issues and try to resolve them state by state, right? So if, if, um, if the Democratic candidate is very popular in Oregon, Washington, California, there's not a lot of national debate compared to, let's say, um, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, right? Those are the modern day, you know, probably swing states and a few others, of course, uh, but not Illinois anymore. It used to be, but not anymore. So it it will draw the candidates to those states that are that are divided in order to understand how to talk with American people to move us forward. You know, I was I was giving a speech uh, last year at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. And I learned something when I was there I didn't know, and that is before he gives the Cooper Union address, Lincoln got on his horse and rode around the country test driving that speech. And the farthest west he ever traveled was Atchison, Kansas, where he gave his speech, which later was delivered at Cooper Union. And my point is here was Lincoln on his way to be a candidate for president, made famous only because of the Lincoln-Douglas debates which is the first uh, political debates ever covered by the national news media in America through the Telegraph, right? He goes all the way to Atchison, Kansas to see how Kansas people, because remember the Kansas-Nebraska Act, right? Right. <laughs> that was bloody Kansas. So he goes all the way out there because he's test driving across the country by train and by horse, uh, how his, his, you know, what it play in Peoria, as they say uh, these days, what really happens is our presidential candidates go to the swing states to see how it's, a, you know, when you give up, I've run for office three times, when you give a speech, half of it is communication back, you know, they either, they either laugh or they don't, you know, and the senator, the senator from Massachusetts just gave a talk yesterday about the Israeli situation. And he said, we ought to have a, a, a cessation of a battle over there in the Middle East, and they all boot him. He's a Democrat in Massachusetts, but there was there was no interest in peace peace process right now. In so anyway, politicians hear back from voters, and um, uh, the fact that that we have swing states forces the candidates to go and go three levels deeper on why is it that these people are not getting along on the key issues, uh, whether it's uh, the border or uh, social security reform or whatever the issue might be. Fascinating. Yeah, that's a, such an important reminder, Michael. Um, uh, you, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us. This is going to be an issue that we're going to revisit as the presidential campaign goes forward. There's no doubt about it. 
Our listeners are going to see it in the news. They're going to hear it in the news. But because of your conversation today, they're going to have a much deeper understanding of the, the origins and significance of the Electoral College. Michael, your organization, Save Our States, um, tell us about it and the work that it does. So Save Our States was started in 2009 simply to uh, push against the National Popular Vote Compact effort in the state capitals. So that's what we do. Um, my role specifically is to give speeches and be in debates, give interviews like this around the country. And so we have a travel budget. We'll go any state in the union that wants to have a speech of any size of the group. And um, we don't require speaking fees. So if somebody wants us either online like this, Jeff, or in person, we'd be happy to arrange for a speech in their community for school, Rotary Club, uh, political group, civic group, et cetera. Good to know. Thank you, Michael. Michael Maybach, thank you so much for taking the time today to join us on The American Idea. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.